This morning we're reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shapham, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We've heard it read. Let's pray and ask God that he would um, come and be with us as we give our attention to it and meditate upon it. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the pleasure of being not only in one another's midst, but being in your midst, in your presence. Thank you that there is nowhere in all creation that we can go where, where we are without you. And that means also that there's nowhere in creation that we can go where we are hidden from your sight. And that's both terrifying to us and a great comfort to us. We know that whenever you speak, you speak and you speak with a commanding voice and you make bold declarations of how things are and how things must be. But we know that also when you speak to us, you speak as, your chil- as, as a father to children, and that's us, your dear children, when we're in Christ. And so we long not only to be corrected and trained and rebuked and taught, but also to be lovingly and tenderly pastored and shepherded by Jesus, our good shepherd. Thank you that when you came to earth 2,000 years ago, you did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through your Son. And so we long to experience something of that great blessing here this morning as our Savior speaks to us. Speak to us in your word, change us from within, and make us a great blessing, even a remedy to our city for the sake of Jesus and his great gospel, we pray. Amen. 
it occurs to me that maybe I didn't say what my name was uh, a minute ago. I remembered that right as I started to pray and thought, well, this is not the time to say your name. Uh, my name's Andy Steger, so there you go. Um, now I'm not a stranger anymore. I'm a bit of an exile, though, even if I'm not a stranger. Um, it's good to be here. Last week, uh, okay, let me give you a quick backdrop. Fudd has been preaching through the book of Matthew, and we've spent a number of weeks, maybe even months, in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous teaching of the Lord Jesus. And I've found, maybe some of you have as well, that uh, this sort of micro-level look at the teaching of Jesus, um, in all of its detail and, and exploring how the gospel gets into every nook and cranny of our lives and calls us to faithfulness, but also promises uh, blessing and joy in the midst of those difficulties. This has been sort of a a micro-level analysis of what it means to be a Christian believer. And so the last two weeks, we've been zooming back, so to speak. The camera has gone from focused very explicitly on, on the actual practical teachings of Jesus, and now we're zooming back with the camera to get a wider angle and to look so that we don't lose the forest for the trees, so to speak, the whole picture of where Jesus is leading us in his march of redemption, where he's taking us along with him. And so that's what we're doing here in Jeremiah 29, as with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 last week. Now, Jeremiah is kind of the bookend to what we talked about last week. Abraham's call, way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, was sort of the initiation of all that God would do with a particular people, a peculiar, strange, different, blessed nation that God chose out of all the nations of the earth through Abraham's family. But now we find ourselves almost at the other end of the Old Testament, and we find that the people of God have not only gone into the promised land, as God promised, The children of Abraham have not only multiplied there, but they've inherited the land. But now something horrible has happened. They have been exiled. They have been booted out of their own turf. And they've been booted out of their turf because they've been judged by God as unfaithful. They've been illegitimate children. Children who do not own up to their heavenly father and and deny him in all that they do. And so God booted the exiles out of Jerusalem and sent them off to Babylon. And here we are. In in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, I want us to see just three things about this exile and specifically about this prophecy. Jeremiah prophesied that unless the people repented, they would be exiled. They didn't repent. And so now they've been exiled And now he is in the position to offer comfort and encouragement to them in their exile. And he sends this letter. Really, God speaks through him to send this letter to these exiles who are living in a strange foreign land. The people of God living in the midst of Babylon. And what Jeremiah and what ultimately uh, the king of Israel himself, the Lord God Almighty, wants his people, his children, to see about their exile is three things. Number one, that their exile, and therefore as God's children, our exile, is actually God's mission. Their exile is God's mission. Secondly, that God's mission has a church. God's mission has a church. We'll explore that in a few minutes. And then finally, that the church that is on God's mission finds God. The church on God's mission finds God himself. So first of all, your exile, Jeremiah wants these exiles to know, is actually God's mission. What do we mean by that? If you look there in verse 4 of our passage, the beginning of the letter, God identifies himself. This is typical in all letters, right? So-and-so to so-and-so. And if you don't remember who I am, here's what I've done for you. That's how ancient letters, as well as modern letters, often open up. And God says, Rather, Jeremiah writes, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the first important thing to understand here is that this exile was not a geopolitical accident. Hmm? 
It was actually God, Jeremiah declares, that was the agent of his own people's exile. Now that's terrifying in one sense, because it means that all the horrible things that happened to God's people, including their outcast from their home promised land, was ordained by God. We can't get into all the nitty-gritty of what that means in the sovereignty of God. But what we can understand is that it wasn't an accident. It was God who exiled them, whom I have sent, he says, into exile. Sent. When we get into the New Testament, the word for send is apostoleo, which, of course, many of you recognize as the word from which we get apostle, the sent ones, right? And there were set apart 12 really important sent ones, but there's a sense in which the whole church is a sent people of God. Sent, whom I have sent into exile. We read here in Jeremiah that this wasn't just an accident, and it wasn't just a punishment to God's people. It wasn't just a sentence for their bad behavior. But their exile in Babylon was actually, we might say, the apostolic mission of God himself. God is sending his people into exile. It seems like Babylon did it, right? They're the ones with the army. But it's actually God who's done it. Matthew Henry says, all the force of the king of Babylon could not have done it if God had not ordained it. Nor could he have any power against them but what was given to him from above. Another way of saying this is what God himself actually says as he identifies himself in verse 4 as the Lord of hosts. And maybe you know that when you're reading your Old Testament and you get Lord in all caps, that's their way of, of saying the, the covenant special name of God, which is literally the I am of the I am. An almost ridiculous, redundant title that's meant to say, you can't define me because I'm the essence of all essences. I am that I am. And so we read here that it's the I am of I ams that has sent his people. And he calls himself the I am of hosts, which that's a little funny. What in the world is a host? It's kind of like a posse, actually, right? In the Old Testament, whenever God is called the Lord of hosts, it's his way of saying, I don't just come on my own, but I come with my posse of angels, right? Shining, uh, flaming, sordid angels. And you don't mess with us, right? Uh, I'm the Lord of hosts, for goodness sake. Uh, it's, the, it's his way of saying, I'm in charge of everything, and very specifically of all the armies on the planet, right? It's not just the Israelite army that God runs. He's the captain of the Assyrian army, and the Babylonian army, and the Roman army, and any other army that happens to be there. He's in control. They're doing evil stuff. It's not him that's doing it. But he is nevertheless in charge of everything that happens. He has ordained this exile. He's the I am of armies. But don't forget that he also still identifies himself not only as the one who comes with armies and sweeps his people up and exiles them if need be, which has happened here, but he still identifies himself, and this is marvelous, this is gospel right in the middle of judgment, as the God of Israel. You see that? I'm the I am of armies, the Lord of hosts, but I'm the God of Israel. So their political entity is blown to smithereens, right? The army comes and takes off all the important people and carts them off to Babylon and leaves the rest of society uh, as a wasteland. Sacks their capital city. And geopolitically, they are no more for all intents and purposes. But God isn't tied to a land He's tied to his people, and he still identifies himself as the God of his people, even in the midst of their sin and even in the midst of their judgment. I am the God of Israel. And so it's God who has sent them. And by the way, he hasn't sent them, did you notice, off to some penal colony, right? You know what a penal colony is, right? I think this is how Australia emerged originally, right? They weren't supposed to have like cool cities like Melbourne and Sydney and everything, uh, they were supposed to be a wasteland, and that's where you sent all the riffraff from the British Empire, right? If you got in trouble in the mainland um, and you were exiled to Australia, 
That's kind of like the, uh, the British equivalent of uh, Russia's Siberia, right? Send them off where there just aren't any people. Just a lot of bamboo or whatever is in Australia. Kangaroos. Go live with kangaroos for your whole lifetime. We don't ever want to see you again. That's a penal colony. Is that what God's doing here? Not exactly. That wouldn't be sending his people. That would be getting rid of them. Removing them from influence. But do you notice? Instead, he's sending them right into the capital, for all intents and purposes, of the entire ancient world. Into Babylon. Right into the center of civilization and society. They're judged... Yes, but they're judged into God's mission. Their exile is God's mission. So that's the point. It's God that's exiled you, verse 4. But then look with me at verse 8. Not only is it God who sent his people into exile, your exile is God's mission, God has exiled you, but God calls them to beware of all lies to the contrary. To beware of all lies to the contrary. You see, there were false prophets, and if you read chapter 27 and chapter 28 before this, you see these prophets come along and they say, Israel, elites, exiles, it's really no big deal, right? Just hang out in Babylon, keep living out of your suitcases, two years, and the king of Babylon is going to be smashed, and God's people will be free once again, and you'll go back plundering them and taking all their cool stuff and heading back to Jerusalem and set up shop again, and everything will be hunky-dory. That was the message of these false prophets. Now, if Jeremiah is the one that, that announced that the exile was coming and then it actually happened, while these losers of prophets were telling them, oh, it's all cool, everything's good, you know, God's on your side, people. Just go on living your life. Then the exile happens. Who do you think has authority now? Well, it's going to be Jeremiah, right? Whatever he says about the exile is going to count for more than these false prophets. But God, people, God's people even, we're really good, aren't we, at um, hearing what we want to hear. So even after the exile, even after Jeremiah is dead on in his prophecy about the exile, we're still prone, as, as were they then, to hear whatever we want to hear. And so they gathered to themselves false prophets who said it's not a big deal. Really, God's upset at Babylon, not you. So Jeremiah says very explicitly in verses 8 and 9, don't listen to a word that they say. I haven't sent them. They're telling you that everything is hunky-dory. It's not. I sent you into exile, for goodness sake. This is a cataclysmic event for my covenant people. This isn't just sort of a um, overnight stay in the Econo Lodge of Babylon. This is a big deal. And ultimately, if we read between the lines here of what these false prophets are trying to do, it seems like what they're actually trying to do, see if you see this as I do, is say, you know what? It's not you, people of Israel. It's them. Stay on the outside. Keep living out of your suitcases. Build little ghettos if you have to on the fringe of the city. But good grief, stay away from those awful Babylonians because God is going to judge them. He's going to nuke them in just two years. See what that does to the soul of God's people? If our attitude is always, okay, we're living here among these awful people. We're going to stay on the outside and not get involved with anything. What we're doing, I mean, this is like, this is like a few weeks ago, the, the message from Jesus about the, the plank in your own eye, the big board sticking out of it, uh, while you're trying to remove the speck in someone else's eye. This is like that analogy, only on a geopolitical scale. These false prophets are walking around with boards in their eyes and saying, people of God, it's no big deal. You're not really that bad. It's them that were bad. But wait a second. You were just exiled for your sin and your unfaithfulness. And now you're trying to say that it's Babylon that's going to really get it? These are really anti-Christ prophets in the best sense of the word. And what I mean by that is, whenever somebody comes along and says, you're all right, it's them. When you've actually, by God directly, been called to repentance and to faith in Christ and his gospel, 
You need to say, get behind me, Satan. I need to be on my knees, repenting, for God has called me to repentance. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. We need to repent. Let me be the lead repenter, because I'm the chief sinner. The false prophet will always say, it's all good. God's on our side, after all. He's rooting for the home team. No big deal. It's just a matter of time before he nukes your enemies. Now, this is, uh, this is Independence Day weekend, right? So there's a lot of USA going on, right? I love being in the United States of America. I feel privileged that I was born here. But let's not forget that if, if God's people who were actually covenanted to him and given a land and then exiled were called not to stay on the outside, but to get into society and to bless it, as we'll see in a few minutes, then we cannot have the attitude as Americans that God has somehow covenanted with us and guaranteed that we will prosper as Christians and run the show here in the U.S. of A. If God's people in the Old Testament weren't immune from exile and then called to love and to serve a foreign country, how about us as Americans who were never given that explicit promise about our land? We're just called to be faithful. America as a project has been, from a biblical perspective, designed to go into a foreign place and to bless it. And we haven't always done that, especially Christians in the United States of America. So let's not get any, any lofty ideas about how God is going to nuke our enemies because we're his chosen people. The church, on its knees, longing for Jesus is the chosen people of God. And even they are called to bear a cross for their whole lives, not to march in triumphalism over the enemies that they find in the world, and certainly not to run the show politically as if it's some kind of guarantee. Let's not sit on the outside and complain about the culture that's on the inside. Let's get in there. If you're a stranger, if you as a Christian feel like you're alone, you feel like, Gosh, I'm the only Christian in my school. I'm the only Christian in my workplace. I'm the only Christian in my studio. I'm the only Christian in my apartment block. Or there's only two of us compared to 25. Your exile is God's mission. God has sent you there. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. God is on a mission and he has sent you. We may never have, I'm not sure that we ever did, our Christian nation back. We may not even ever have a Christian South Carolina. We probably won't. You may never work in a Christian business. Maybe you will. It's still going to be full of sinners. You may never have these things. You may never have what you long for in terms of home until the new heavens and the new earth, until glory itself, until Jesus comes back. But for now... We're sent as sheep among wolves. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? We're sent as bearers of light into the midst of darkness. We're sent even as Jesus Christ himself was on God's mission. And we'll look at that in a few minutes, what Jesus has to do with all of this. So, your exile is God's mission. Secondly, from this passage, God's mission has a church. God's mission has a church. Christopher Wright is a missiologist that has said something that has radically changed me in the last year, and it's this. He says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. Do you see the distinction there? You know, Remedy Church or First Baptist Church, or First ARP Church, or any church in town could sort of divide up its tasks, right? And form committees, or teams, or whatever you like, and just split up everything that the church has to do, right? We've got a sound and lighting team, right? We've got a worship team. We've got a local benevolence team. We've got a uh, set-up and tear-down team, since we're a church plant. Uh, We've got a preaching and, and eldership team, and a discipleship team. Oh, and then over here we've got a committee that's in charge of missions. 
That's how we organize ourselves in America, right? Oh, there's something that we're called to do. Let's get a committee to do it, right? And so two or three people in the entire congregation are all of a sudden in charge of the Great Commission, right? Bringing the gospel to the four corners of the world. How does, how does that work? <laughs> How's that going to work? In a meeting once a month, right? It's a little goofed up, isn't it? But if you look at things in the reverse, as Christopher Wright calls us to, you realize that it's not that God has a mission for his church, along with a praise team and a setup team and a benevolence team, but that he has a church, an entire people that he has raised up specifically to go with him in his mission to bless the nations of the earth. So in verse 5, for example, he tells them what this specifically means. Because if you're carted off to Babylon and you're an important person and you're going, how in the world do I fit into this culture? Well, Jeremiah tells them pretty explicitly. Verse 5, build houses, plant gardens, eat the produce that comes from those gardens. In other words, get an address, right? Sink roots deep into the ground. Belong to the actual land by putting your house on it by tilling the soil and planting seeds and watering them and then waiting long enough for them to produce a harvest. God's children come into a foreign land with the gospel and they're called to cultivate and to belong in such an awful, ugly, pagan society? Well, yeah, that's exactly what he's calling them to do. Plant yourself here. You belong here until I tell you otherwise. Verse 5, make yourself at home. And number 6, this is good news, I think, maybe to some of us married people. Make babies. Find a wife if you're single and you want to get married. Find a wife. And then make babies with her. Um, And then encourage those babies to make babies with other people's babies. So that all you 20-something... after you've matured and right after you've dated and gotten to know each other, blah, 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 right? You get the point. But the point here is God's saying, I don't want fewer of you here. I want lots of you here. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian, and it's kind of like one of these bad jokes among us Presbyterians since we're, compared to Baptists, we're pretty bad at evangelism. So what we call making babies is Presbyterian evangelism. (laughs) And that's what kind of God is calling his people to here is a sort of Presbyterian evangelism. You want the people of God to have a greater influence in this foreign society? Make lots of babies that love God and are called according to his purposes. God wants 20-somethings to plan on having grandchildren there. Now you're thinking like, maybe you're not thinking, but you need to be thinking, okay, I'm a conservative, straight-laced, evangelical, Bible Belt family man, right? You want me to raise a family Several generations of a family in Babylon, right? Sin City. Babylon, by the way, um, I've never been to New York City, but New York City, of course, is a wonderful place and a place where a lot of horrible things happen, right? Well, Babylon makes New York City look kind of like Pleasantville by comparison, right? Babylon is a bad place. There's lots of good stuff going on, lots of great stuff that can only happen in a great city, But there's also people being exploited left and right and oppressed. And lots of blood on lots of people's hands. But you're called to raise a family there? This is really something. God wants more of his people there, not fewer. Verse 7 tells us that he's looking for us to infiltrate the community for the sake of blessing. Because you might be thinking, okay, I'm called to raise a family in Babylon. Maybe that means that I'll just kind of build a house and a garden way out in the suburbs, right? Or out in the country where things are safe and where people stay off my land. I don't have people like bumping into me and everything. I got nothing wrong with suburbs and everything, right? Um, they're, they're great places. Cities are great places as well. Maybe you're thinking, well, what this means is I'll basically make a compound, a gated community with a fence, right? And nobody bad can get in. I'll be living in Babylon, just like God has said, but my family will be safe. Well, that's not exactly what he's calling you to do. God isn't calling you to be aloof, 
to remain disinterested and sort of critical and disdainful of the community that you've been called to, living on the margins of society. Christians do this pretty well, too, uh, maybe you've noticed. Um, Everything from these wacko uh, cult leaders like David Koresh, do you remember? Were you even alive during, during that? Some of you were. I'm one of those old people now that say, some of you weren't even alive when David Koresh was doing his thing. I remember watching all that on the television. Um, everything from David Koresh and that weird cult compound all the way over to things like Christian coffee houses and the Christian equivalent of Twitter, which is called Christian Chirp. Right? That's pretty cool. Everybody's going to join Christian Chirp after church today um, so that we can keep uh, bad tweets out of our Twitter feeds. All of these sort of things that we would do are perfectly calibrated to keep us safe from bad influences. But that's not what God is calling his people to do. We might think, okay, so he's not calling us to live outside of the society on a compound with a gated uh, entrance and everything and maybe some armed guards there. Maybe what he's calling us to do is, look, we're not in charge anymore. We can't run the show, so if you can't beat them, join them, right? Assimilate. When in Rome, when in Babylon, do as they do. This actually is the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because he's in the business of conquering foreign peoples. And his idea is, don't oppress them or else there'll be an uprising someday and a lot of your people will get killed. And... Don't sit them out on the fringes of society where they can still retain their identity and be themselves. Instead, let's get them into the thick of things. Let's give them Babylonian names. Hmm? Daniel was called Belteshazzar or something, which means uh, my God is Baal. Let's just, let's, let's make them at home. Let's roll out the welcome wagon to some extent. Give these elites jobs Give them something to do. And within a generation, they'll lose all of their cultural and especially religious distinctiveness. You think that's God's strategy here? No, of course not. Just as against ghettoizing on the the fringes, um, God is also just as much against, if not more, just kind of losing your identity and assimilating. He hasn't called us to assimilate. What has he called them to do? Verse 7, he's called them to seek the welfare of the city, to seek the peace, to seek the shalom of the city. And to do this, it's assumed that these people, because they are the elites of society, right? They are the royalty. They are the people that are in government. They are the metal workers, the craftspeople, the officials, the artists, the intelligentsia. They're the, they're the important people. If they're called to seek the welfare of Babylon, that means that they're going to have to ply their trade right alongside Babylonians. And so that means God is calling them to make the government in Babylon a little bit more just than it was before. To make the art in Babylon a little more beautiful than it was before. To make the tools and the household goods that these craftspeople made stronger, more innovative, and sold at much more of a fair price. Just mundane things like that, God is greatly interested in for this foreign pagan city. God's people are called, in contrast to the ways of Babylon, to dignify the image of God, humanity, wherever they see it, instead of oppressing people and looking for the bottom line of financial gain. They're not going to exploit and objectify people the way that the Babylonians did, they're going to see in them the image of God and seek their blessing and their welfare. How does this apply to us? Does Rock Hill exist for Remedy Church? Or does Remedy Church exist for Rock Hill? Maybe that's not much of a zinger to you all because FUD constantly beats that drum around here. You know, don't you? Your name is Remedy, right? Not self-remedy, but remedy to the city of Rock Hill through the message of Jesus Christ and his grace and through deeds done in love and mercy. But a lot of us, individually and a lot of church groups, 
if you look at them, you get the impression by their behaviors and by their attitudes, and this could happen right here in Remedy, even with your name being Remedy, if you're not careful, your attitude could be, my city exists for me and for my church to prosper. God says, no. This church is my mission to this city to be a blessing and to be a remedy here, to bring spiritual and social and relational gospel renewal into this city. And so what happens here, do you remember the prophet saying that you will be here not two years, but 70 years in Babylon? 70 years is basically a a sort of pilot project of God's, a sort of test drive, if you will, of everything that he's going to do in the book of Acts after the Lord Jesus comes, lives his life, dies his death, is raised, and ascends back into heaven. This infiltration with the gospel into a foreign pagan place is a sort of test drive for what happens in the book of Acts. And then in the book of Acts... Christians are scattered all over the Greco-Roman world and they go into the cities, even the ones where there's nastiness. Every city has nastiness, of course. And they seek the shalom, the blessing of those cities. And within 300 years, those cities believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and became part of the Christian church and sought the blessing of their cities alongside of those original believers. And by the way, shalom, blessing, peace, uh, welfare, it doesn't just mean no more people beating up on other people, no more armies coming in and carting off your stuff, a cessation of hostilities, right? It doesn't mean just peace, peace in the Middle East. It means on every imaginable level, the society blossoms and flourishes. In every industry, justice and mercy reign. In every artistic endeavor, beauty is created with joy. That's what we're going here for here, not just the cessation of hostilities. And this is the mission for which God has a church in the world. So, God's heading into the Babylon, the Babylons and the Romes of our world. He's also heading into the sort of post-Bible Belt small towns like Rock Hill. And he's going. The question is, will he have a church for his mission? Will we be a church for his mission? Are we so captivated by a God that would go into darkness with the supreme effulgent light of his Shekinah glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bless and to save and not to condemn, that we'll go into what by comparison is a little bit of darkness and bring the light of the gospel to bear on it. So your exile is God's mission. God has a church for his mission. What else? Finally, and really most marvelously of all, The mission church, the church on a mission, ends up finding God himself. You're thinking, well, these are the people of God. They've already found God, right? Let me ask you, have you found God? Well, in a sense, if you're a Christian believer, of course you have, right? Your life is very different. And you have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe through your Savior, Jesus. But you know, the longer you live as a Christian, that you, Bono and you two played a show in Nashville last night, you still haven't found what you're looking for. (laughs) That was cheesy. (laughs) You know that there's, there's incredible levels of intimacy and love and devotion to Jesus that you haven't experienced yet. There's a sense in which Billy Graham hasn't yet found God. There's a sense in which we all need to find God. Now, especially the elites, it would seem, of this ancient society, ancient Israel. God has determined by carting them off into Babylon, by sending them on his mission, that in the process of all of that and all the ambiguities and difficulties and uh, strategizing 
and pouring of one's life out for a distant foreign country, that in the process of all that, what becomes of it? God moves into the people's hearts like he never has before. Seventy years. When you think 70 years, that's how long they were to be in exile before they were returned. What do you think of 70 years? That's what for us? That's a whole lifetime, isn't it? Right? So he's saying to these original exiles, you are going to die in a foreign land. You're not coming home. Your grandchildren will come home. But you are not coming home. I want you to expend your entire life for the sake of Babylon and my mission there. And ultimately, for the sake of the hearts of your grandchildren as they go with you and as they depend on God for his mission. This is a whole lifetime. Imagine if you're comparing notes between the two prophets, right? Say you, uh, you got framed for a murder that you didn't do. And the jury comes out and they say, two years. You're thinking, I can do two years. Piece of cake, right? Like, yeah, I didn't do it, and that's going to stink. But imagine the jury comes out and they say, life. This is heavy stuff for these people. They would have struggled with this to no end. I'm sure that they didn't just jump right in and figure it all out. This was, in a way, a death sentence to them. But as it often happens in the Bible, just when it seems and feels like God is actually killing you, what he's really doing is saving you. He's after the hearts of his people. And he'll take a whole lifetime of exile to get their hearts back. But as we remember uh, these people being exiled and sent for an entire lifetime into a foreign place, let's not forget, by the way, that... God is up to this sort of thing. And supremely, he does this in Jesus Christ himself, right? God doesn't just exile people without being exiled himself. He knows what it's like to be his people and then some. Think about it. Um, Jesus wasn't just a priest. The priests were exiled. But he was the high priest in the real granddaddy of all temples, in the heavenly Zion. Like he's in charge of the real temple. He's the high priest if there ever was one. Not just some priest. And he's exiled far from the temple. Jesus is called to a pagan city for not 70 years, but for a whole lifetime. He's called... Not to a foreign land, but actually to his own people, the people of Israel. And isn't it marvelous that he only lasts 33 years among his own people? So deep was the darkness of that place. The Lord Jesus is familiar intimately with this sort of exile. He wasn't called to leave his heavenly house and to go and to build a house for himself and plant a garden. But he walked around Palestine saying things like, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head and rest. He's a vagabond. He's homeless. He is exiled and then some for our sake. God will move heaven and earth to get our hearts. He ultimately does this in Jesus Christ, but even in Jeremiah's day, he was doing this as well. Verses 10 and 11 show us that God is not just sovereign, he's not just graceful, but that he's sovereign in his grace. He's sovereign in his grace. In his exercise of grace, he moves nations around the map to accomplish his purpose. He does so powerfully. He raises up rulers. He dethrones them, all according to his gracious plan. And he's positioned his own people with hearts that need to be more full of him in Babylon, not just for Babylon's sake, but for the sake of conquering their hearts. He's the Lord of hosts, and he and his posse are going to come and position you, if you're in Christ, in such a way where he will get your heart. 
He's after your heart. It's a conquest, and you're going to lose. But you're going to win as he takes your heart for himself. Not only is God sovereign in his grace, not only does he move the map around in order to accomplish his purposes, namely getting our hearts back, verses 10 and 11, but also in verses 12 and 13, we see that he's gracious in the midst of all of his sovereignty. It's not just that he's powerful, but that in the midst of his power, he loves to display his grace. So God's intention, even when we're in our foreign exile slash mission to the world, with all of the ambiguities and difficulties that it entails, how do we live faithfully here is after our own hearts. There's actually a part of your heart and a part of my heart that will never fully experience the love and the intimacy of God until we're so deeply dependent on God himself out there in the mission. We don't know what to do. God, help us. There's people all around us that need your love and your mercy. And I don't know how to do it. I'm a knucklehead spiritually. Now you're talking. Look at the difference between that and God smite those bad people over there and keep us safe from them. There's a massive difference. And the difference is the character of God in Jesus Christ himself. If you want that part of your heart that you're putting in a gated community with safety to actually become the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him where he goes into the darkness with the light of grace and the gospel. Until you're pressed into the service of God, there's part of God that you will not find. And maybe the better way to say it is there's part of you that won't yet be God's. God is jealous. Jealous over all of your heart. He didn't make people in his image so that he could sort of like have one day or a couple hours, one once a week of his image bearer's heart's devotion. He wants all of you And he'll move heaven and earth and armies and all the rest in order to get all of you. God pulls something out of our hearts. It's not just because he likes to remove superficial blessings. I don't think he takes any delight in just taking away things that we enjoy. But he wants to plant himself there. Verse 14 gives us a big gulp of this. And what it kind of amounts to is that Jesus, plus nothing at all, actually amounts to everything. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations of the earth where I have driven you. And I will bring you back to this place. Earlier in verse 12, you will call upon me And pray to me, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. What a God we have that would bother to go after not just people's hearts in a nominal, superficial way, not just get one or two hours of worship out of them per week, but know that they're rebels know that the last thing that they want to do is bear his image in and of themselves and seek not just part of their heart, but their entire heart for himself. What a missionary God we have. And while we're on this sojourn, while we're in this strange and distant land, while we're living our lives, our entire lives, in a state of exile, let's not forget that God has us for his mission. And that one of his greatest pleasures in summoning us to his mission is to get us. That's gospel good news. When God is so sovereign in his grace and so gracious to us in the midst of his sovereignty. We're going to worship God in a moment together.
in song. We've heard from his word. We want to respond to all of his grace with submission, with obedience, but also with delight. If we have a God who not only is going to get our lives, but wants our lives, desires us, let's respond to him, not just with obedience, but with pure joy. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, you move throughout the earth in very mysterious ways. Thank you for seeking and saving that which is lost. Thank you for not just dismissing us when we've gone our own way, but counting us as lost and running after us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for banding us together as brothers and sisters now reconciled to our Heavenly Father and giving us uh, a share in the family business of seeking the prosperity of the earth that you own and playing a small cooperative role in the grand redemption that Jesus himself brings. Jesus, be pleased with our worship Be pleased with our hearts, even as you conquer them in these moments. We pray that you would smash all of the gates and fortifications that we've put up against your love and grace, and that you would barge right on in and capture all of our hearts. Give to us prayer that's authentic and that comes from a heart that's been changed by you. Give us melody and harmony and words to sing now, a new song to our God. And most of all, be found by us uh, as we join you throughout the next week and in the coming months and years as your people sent to bless and not to curse. We ask it together for your glory and for our good. In Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.